take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. The book of Hebrews is a difficult book. It's thick theologically, and because it's tied to so many Old Testament figures, Old Testament allusions, and Old Testament passages, and our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament, it makes it difficult to read. In fact, there's some things in the book of Hebrews that are probably some of the most difficult passages to deal with in in all of the Scripture. Yet, it is a book that was given to the church of Christ in a time of need, in a time of distress. And I think we have to bear that in mind, that such a rich and difficult book was given to Christians that were suffering. You know, sometimes we just want uh, to hear from a preacher, or we, we just want to get to a passage of Scripture that just, just gives me some practical advice, that just gives me a, a tip on how do, I, how do I deal with work, how do I deal with health, how do I deal with school, or loneliness, or depression. Just, just give me some sort of verse that I can hang my hat on to deal with those things. And then you come to a passage, or a book like Hebrews, that's written to people that are dealing with all of those struggles of the above things, and you get one of the most dense and richest books in all of the Scriptures. And so Hebrews it teaches us that we cannot actually properly deal with those very practical things in life, such as how do I live life, at work, at school, wherever it may be, I can't actually function rightly apart from a correct understanding of Christ. I can't deal with issues and struggles in life, whether it be sin or some sort of suffering, apart from my understanding of Christ's work on behalf of the church. And so we see... Christ is not just another pro-tip to help you with things. Christ is not just a band-aid to our problems. But knowing Christ, knowing who He is and what He does, helps us to understand that He brings actual and true healing and help by His real presence with us right now and His real work for us in heaven right now. And we can't deal with anything else apart from understanding that. Everything else is just simply a band-aid apart from knowing who Christ is. And a band-aid brings no healing. And this is repeated over and over again in the book of Hebrews. And this morning we come to verses that will simply repeat this simple fact that Christ died for His people as a priest, and He intercedes on His people right now. That's the greatest truth that we can hear. That is the best truth that we can hear. And that is the truth that the book of Hebrews continually repeats over and over again. So let us hear the Word of God, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And this is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 through 2 is the mention that Christ, again, is our high priest. And the first thing I want you to notice about this is this is a present reality for us. We're not waiting for Christ to become our high priest. We're not waiting for Christ to become our advocate. We're not waiting for Christ to be our mediator. The text says, this is what we have. You'll notice what it says. We have such a high priest. That is in the present tense of saying that it's something that if you are in Christ right now, what you have is everything that was said about Christ. All of the incomprehensible riches of Christ, we have that right now. In 1 John chapter 2, we read this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have, notice the language, we have right now, at this very moment, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Notice what this says, that if you have struggled with sin, if the weight and guilt of sin holds you down, right now we have an advocate on our behalf. We have this right now. In fact, this point is the very point of the book of Hebrews. Notice what it says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That's the summary or the main point of it. Now, Hebrews, you have to remember, the book of Hebrews is most likely a sermon that was recorded for a group, group of Christians and they're sent in an, an epistolatory form that is a letter to a group of struggling Christians. And so what I do love about this is the preacher gets only halfway through the sermon and says, here's my main point. And that's what he does here is he says, this is my point. Now connect that with what's said at the end of the book where it says in verse 22 of chapter 13, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. You put those two things together. Here's the main point, and here's the exhortation. Our need is met by Christ. That's the exhortation to us. And that word exhortation means to come alongside. It means to implore. It means to offer help at a time of need. And so this is the simple fact of Hebrews. And you can close the book and say that's the point of Hebrews, is that Christ meets our greatest need. If I'm struggling with sin, Christ meets my need and is there on my behalf. If I'm discouraged with the weight of the world, Christ meets my need 
and is there on my behalf. If I'm worried about what tomorrow will bring, and certainly that is on the minds of all of us, what tomorrow holds, Christ meets my need and is there on my behalf. He is over tomorrow. He is sovereign over tomorrow. He has written what is tomorrow. So here's the point. Christ meets our need. He is our great high priest, and that's why it is stressed over and over again. You consider what your needs are. Hebrews tells you this, Christ has met them. And if you are in Christ, your need is met. You have no greater need than Christ. Notice where he meets this need for us. It states that the location of where he meets this need is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's speaking of his priesthood and his kingship. And we've looked at this theme that Christ is both priest and king. Why does the book of Hebrews continually remind us of his kingship and of his priesthood? And specifically, we are reminded over and over again that Christ sat down at the right hand, which is speaking of his kingship, And his work there speaks of his priesthood. Why are we told this over and over again? Isn't it good enough to just hear it once that Christ sat down at the majesty on high? There's a reason for it, and it's this. It's to remind us Christ rules and intercedes right now as sovereign God. And that this ruler is also our advocate. You see in Colossians, in chapter 1, It speaks of Christ's rule in this way. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything he might be preeminent. I want you to notice what this text says, is that all earthly things are under the sovereign control of Christ. They're held together by him. That is speaking of Christ's divine rule over all things as God. But there's another aspect of this Colossians passage that tells us this, is that Christ is also specifically and particularly head of the church. He is our head of the church. He is not only sovereign over all of creation, and all of creation is held together, but he is specially, in in a special way, the text and scripture points to how Christ is ruling over us, those who have gathered in his name and are saved in his name, is that he is ruling over us in a special way. This distinct from his general rule over the entire world, which means that he has a special governance over his church. And what is that special governance? Is that he will protect it, and that he will grow it, that he will nourish it. When we think about him sitting down at the right hand, 
You can think of it as His general sovereignty, but Scripture also points to a special sovereignty over His church. That is you and I, if you're in Christ. That He has a special care over you. What a comfort it is to be reminded that He is in control and that He is ruling over His church and He is ruling for His church, that He is directing His church, that He is leading His church, that He is empowering His church. In fact, we see that when Christ rises and goes to heaven in the ascension and His sitting down, Paul uses that very description to describe how Christ empowers His church. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read in verse Uh, 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So you notice the language which Paul is saying is Christ ascended into heaven. Well, what's Christ doing in heaven? Well, notice what it says. He's empowering his church, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, He ascends, He sits down, and yes, He's sovereign over all things that exist. There's nothing outside of His sovereign domain. But then the text of Scripture tells us the beautiful truth that as He sits down, He is sovereign over you and I and ruling the church, empowering the church, gifting the church, equipping the church so that we would grow into the fullness of Christ. What a wonderful reminder that Christ demonstrates His special rule over His people. What was it that He told His frightened disciples after the crucifixion and resurrection? He said, all power has been given to me by the Father. And then He tells them to go. They were frightened. They were terrified, weak men. But Christ says, all authority and power has been given into me. You go now. That's what Christ tells us. And we can be reminded that our sovereign God, our sovereign Lord, sits at the right hand of majesty and rules over his church. That he sat down, it confirms that Christ is given by the Father the seat of honor and of authority. He is given this as the God-man meaning that the work of the Son that was given to the Son was complete. There's nothing left for Him to accomplish. And He's been blessed by the Father. And He does this in His humanity even now, which gives us hope that one day our humanity will be resurrected and we will be received into heaven with glorious new bodies. So let us, because He is our God in heaven, Let us worship Him and adore Him. If you get one practical thing out of the text of Scripture that Christ sat down at the right hand of majesty, know that there's a comforting aspect, that He's ruling, He's protecting, and He's nourishing us. But get this out of it. We can bow and worship before Him. There's no greater practical application than this, that when we think of the majesty of Christ, it leads us to awe and to worship Him.
He is our Lord. It says he is a minister in the holy places. What is a minister? It's one, it's one who does service. It's one who goes and, and does work. And what is that work? Think about how Jesus says this as he's about ready to, to leave his disciples. He says in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Christ is doing that service now with the seat of authority, preparing a place for his people. What a glorious thought that if you are in Christ, that you have a heavenly home, that Christ has built for you, and that Christ is keeping for you. Now, you just rewind about 2,000 years ago, and the, the state of these Hebrews, they were facing persecution. Some of them were facing death. Some of them might have faced even being displaced or, or losing everything. In fact, we know historically that when people are persecuted, it's not just their lives, but they lose their, their personal things. They, they lose their, their private property. And so what a comforting reality it is to know that this place is not my home. If I lose everything here, which you don't want to do, but you have this one comforting fact is that Christ is a minister on your behalf preparing a place for you right now that is imperishable and it's kept there by Christ for you, your eternal dwelling, because this life is short. And every day it gets shorter. But there's an eternal dwelling. And we have a minister on our behalf that has prepared it for us even right now. He sat at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. Verse 2 says he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You know, it's interesting. It uses this picture of the tent or the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, a place of worship for Israel that they would gather and worship and the presence of God would come and descend upon the Holy of Holies and they would worship God. The tabernacle itself was mysterious. We read in Acts chapter 7, verse 48, this, this description of it, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I read that verse to say this point is the tabernacle as amazing as it was and as amazing as the temple would even be. What we read in the text of scripture is that it, in all of its glory, in all of its majesty, could not contain God. It could not house God. As if God lived in something made by human hands. As if God was dependent and needed something to live in. So notice what the text here. Christ, a minister, where? In the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. What is that true tent? There's two views. The first view is that it's speaking of Christ's body. 
His glorified body. You think of John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. And that word dwelt is the same word for tabernacled. Uh, he, he set up His tent amongst us. You think of the passages of the angel visiting Mary when Mary says in Luke, How will this be that I will have a son since I have not known a man? And the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come and then you will have this child in this mysterious working of God. That's amazing that the second person of the Trinity the eternally begotten Son of God, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in all things, God, fully God, creator of all things, brought into creation, contained and yet not able to be contained in a human body. The other view is that this is speaking of a, of a tabernacle of heaven, and that heaven itself is that tabernacle and Christ entered there. What we know is that what it is speaking of is what is true, whereas everything else pointed to what is true. That Christ is our true temple. Christ is our true tabernacle. Christ himself mediates in the place of the true versus what is not now, what is the duty of a high priest? You see this in beginning in verse 3. When it begins to speak of the work of a priest, verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the duty of a, of a high priest was they were appointed. And appointed means that there was a law that governed what they did, and what governed what they did is they had to offer gifts, they had to offer sacrifices, exactly how God prescribed, and forgiveness would not be accepted apart from a gift and the shedding of blood. And so that was their duty, was a priest had to offer something. And the necessity, this is a necessity of a priest. And so what the text says is this is also necessary for this priest. When it says this priest, that's speaking of Christ, for this priest also to have something to offer. Now the text doesn't tell us here what he offers. It's not stated until later what the nature of his gift is. In verse 14 of chapter 9, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself? So what is the offer? What was the necessary offer of Christ? It was himself, his body, his blood, that was without blemish. Again, you, you think of who... Jesus is. The offering of a lamb or some sort of animal or grain has a market value, and that's the value of it. It only has a limited value. Christ, the Son of God, is eternal, He is infinite, therefore, His value is infinite. And it is eternal. Christ only has intrinsic value. So what is offered by Christ 
is that which contains the most valuable conceivable. It has a value that cannot be measured. It has a value that cannot be estimated. It has a value that we cannot even conceive of. We can't put a number on it because there is no number great enough to speak of the value of Christ that has been offered on our behalf. And so the Hebrews looking back at going to a sacrificial system by which they might have salvation What the Bible is telling us is that actually has no true value. Why would you look to those things? Or if you think, I will offer my good works, I will offer who I am as a good person, and at the end of the day, God will put me on the the, the scale of justice and see how much good I've done and how much bad I've done, and the good will outweigh the bad you will infinitely fall short. Your your works, are are told, we are told, are worthless, filthy rags. Christ offers His perfect life, a perfect righteousness that is of an eternal and infinite value. Why would we ever be so crazy and insane to think that we could offer our works on behalf of our salvation. And that's simply what the Hebrews were looking back to doing, is offering a work. And he did not offer for himself. He offered for those who by faith trust in him. And so I want you to think of it, if Christ's sacrifice and Christ's offering is of infinite and eternal value, it means it's eternal and infinite value with the Father. Let me tell you the wonderful truth about this. Have you ever been rejected? Let me ask you this. Will the Father reject the offering of the Son? No way. If you're in Christ, you have been accepted. If you are in Christ, you have been loved and are loved. If you are in Christ, you were kept forever and will never, ever be rejected in Christ. That's what it means because his offering is of an eternal, infinite value. And if he has offered that on your behalf, you have trusted in Christ, you can never be rejected by the Father. Because he will never reject his son. He loves his son. And because he loves the son, if you are in the son, he loves you. The father will never refuse a gift offering from his son. We see a picture then of the sanctuary in verses 4 through 5. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So you notice verse 4 begins with this argument. Now if he were on earth... What's the point is that Christ is not an earthly priest. Did he begin his ministry on earth? Yes. 
He did, and he accomplished part of his work. But it was in his resurrection and in his ascension that is the fullness of that work. And so in many ways, you can think of it like this. He's not a priest in earthly terms. And so whereas the work of Christ on our behalf began on earth, it's now in heaven, and that's where his work is taking place. And verse 5 shows us how important this is for our Christian lives. Because it shows us the purpose of those former offerings that were given by priests. And it's to illustrate what Christ does in verse 5. You'll notice three words. It's the word copy, it's the word shadow, and it's the word pattern. And those three words are absolutely crucial for understanding the Old Testament. Is that everything that we see in the Old Testament was a copy, a shadow, or a pattern that was designed by God for a greater purpose. And so when we read the Old Testament, we should be thinking copy, shadow, or pattern. That's what the New Testament tells us. And when the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, that's the interpretation. Got it? And so how is it that this works. Well, first of all, we see that the, these things that were a copy, a shadow, and pattern were designed by God Himself. You'll notice in the text where it's repeating what was spoken to Moses in Exodus, Moses was instructed that everything he sees and that what God has shown him on the mountain, he's to make an exact copy of that. So when Moses built the tabernacle, he didn't just imagine it. He didn't call in some exterior and interior decorators and ask their opinion. He was on the mountain and God reveals it to him and shows it to him in some way that we're not told how he saw this. But Moses sees the example, the pattern of what he's supposed to build. And he comes down and builds it exactly. And so what does that word copy mean? Well, the word copy means that it's an example. It's an example of something. In fact, you see it translated that way when Jesus speaks of his work of washing the disciples' feet should be an example to others. And so that word copy, it's an example of something else. It's to model something, but it's not the something. It's simply a copy of it. It's, a, it's not the original, if you will. Then you find that word shadow, and a shadow is something that, that prefigures something. We have all seen our shadow we can recognize our shadow. Our shadow is a representation of us, but our shadow doesn't give the full details. The shadow is not who we are, right? It's just a simply a shadow of it. It, it. it cannot truly express what is real, but is only simply a representation. 
In fact, we're told this in the same word is used in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And this is speaking of the feasts. The feasts in the Old Testament, when you read all of those feasts, what should you think? Come on, I just told you the answer. Copy, shadow, pattern. And that's exactly what Scripture tells us. They they were just a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And the next thing that you see is that Moses was to build this after the pattern. A pattern is simply an imitation. It carries the likeness, but it's not the thing itself. In fact, you, you see that in Exodus in chapter 25, in verse 9, where it says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. And so it's the likeness of something, but it's not the reality of it. And so the earthly tabernacle was a picture of a greater reality, but it itself was not the reality. So if Christ is the reality, and Christ is and is in the true tabernacle, it means that all earthly means, even those sanctified by God, such as Israel's tabernacle, only pointed to something greater. So you think about all the 39 books of the Old Testament that revolve around God's law and God's people and setting up their practices of worship and how they were in the land if they were obedient to it, how they were out of the land if they were disobedient to it. All of that history, those thousands of years of history, all of that was pointing to something that was greater. The greater's here. And all that it pointed to The text of Scripture says, we have this. What Moses was shown on the mountain in some mysterious way, as a a copy, as a shadow, as a pattern, something that was pointing to it, but was not the real thing, it's something that right now we truly and really have. So Christian... If you're in Christ, you have Christ right now. And all that the tabernacle, all that the sacrifices, all that the feast, all that the law pointed to is fulfilled in Christ. And the text of Scripture says, we have such a high priest. The greater is here. And one thing that you see throughout Hebrews over and over again is how in Christ... Everything is better. And now I don't mean that means we live a better life right now. I don't mean that like things get happy all the time for you. I mean everything in Christ is better. Everything in Christ is superior. Notice what it says in verse 6. It, it says, but as it is, that, that's actually the word now. In fact, you see throughout this, these six verses over and over again the word Now. Now, this is what we have. And so, as it is, right at this moment, look what the language says. Christ has obtained a ministry. That word obtained, I want you to notice the the tense of the verb here. 
It's something that has already taken place in the past, but now has continuing effects into the future. Let me say that again. That word obtained means something that was accomplished in the past, but right now we're receiving the benefits of it. That's what that word means. What Christ has obtained, He's accomplished, and at this moment, we are experiencing the realities of it. To obtain means He has come into possession of it. And so what was represented is now a reality in Christ. And so we're told that in Him we have a better covenant. Notice what it says, but as it is, that is now, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. If you read the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation, you cannot escape the word covenant. In fact, I, 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 I believe that the proper structure to reading the Bible is through the lens of covenant. The first time you find the word covenant in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 9. And it's the Noahic covenant. And it's a covenant to all of mankind. Because it's a covenant that will promise to keep all of mankind. That's an important covenant because in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God says that he will bring about the seed to crush the serpent's head. Well, how will he do that? Well, he will let human beings live so that there can be a means for him to bring about this seed. That's a general, you call it the Noahic covenant. Then you see the next covenant that's given in Scripture is with Abraham. And you see that beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 15, or in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17. You see that language of covenant that God has made. And that is, now it's no longer to all of mankind, but it's with Abraham and his children specifically. Whereas the Noahic covenant was to preserve mankind, God won't wipe them out again, the Abrahamic covenant is for a specific people. And then you find another covenant. Happens at the base of Sinai. It's the Mosaic covenant. It's the giving of the law. And then you have the book of the covenant that is given to the people. And it's a way that will govern the children of Abraham in the land that they may receive the blessings that God has promised to Abraham. As long as they're obedient, they'll receive these blessings that God has promised to Abraham. Now, remember, the Noahic covenant has already promised all of mankind. God won't wipe them out with a flood again. But the Abrahamic covenant is special with a specific group of people tied to a land that there will be kings, there will be children. And then God says, here's how you receive that through this Mosaic covenant. But there needs to be someone to enforce that covenant. There needs to be someone that makes sure the laws are kept because what do we read when you read the book of Judges? Everyone does what's right in their own eyes for there was no king in the land. And so God gives a covenant with David. 
for a promise of an eternal throne. The problem is, is that David understands that that's not fulfilled in him, but it's going to be fulfilled in his greater son. And he even prophesies that it will be the coming one. And so all of those old covenants pointed to the greater reality. They themselves were not the reality. And that is going to become the rest of the theme of the book of Hebrews, is that there is this better covenant that has been enacted. It's not a conditional covenant based upon your obedience, and it's, no long, it, it's going to be one that actually brings salvation. And only those in the new covenant, since the old covenant is done away with, are saved. And that becomes the theme. Why is it a better covenant? Because we have a greater and better mediator on our behalf who has fulfilled all of the covenant obligations, which is Christ. It is more excellent. The covenant he mediates is better. And why is it better? The text tells us because it has better promises. It's not the promise of earthly land. It's the promise of a new heavens and new earth. It's an eternal inheritance of a new heavens and new earth. And it is far better because the mediator is far better. And here's what you must know, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our greater mediator. You know, these verses teach us so many things. But I think the thing that it teaches us this is it points us heavenward. How, how do I live right now? You can't control tomorrow. We, we know that things are not good in our country. I will tell you this, the next election won't solve that. A new law in the favor of Christians won't solve that. So how do I live right now? I I live with this one central fact is that Christ is my high priest and my king and he is ruling on behalf of his people right now. And that he is preparing a place for me that cannot be taken away, that cannot be taxed, that cannot fall apart because he builds it. And should I not know that as Christ is priest king over the church, that whatever befalls me at this time is to, in some way, my prophet. Do you believe that? That whatever happens, if Christ is king and Christ is ruling, whatever happens is to your prophet. You must believe that. And here's why you must believe that. Christ says that he is working all things to the good of those who love him. And so if we truly believe that, we know that whatever we face here, 
will be somehow in the mysterious working of God's providence to our profit. Why? Because he is sovereign God ruling over his church to protect it, to build it, to nourish it, so that you will reach fullness of maturity in Christ. That's the greatest comfort we can have because you won't find a lot of it here. But we can find it as we point heavenward to our King. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our priest, our king, our prophet, who mediates now on our behalf. We thank you for the wonderful truths that Christ is sovereign over all things and is sovereign over the church, especially over the church, that his particular love is set upon the church to to guard it. We take so great comfort in that, Father. We know this is what has sustained your church for the last 2,000 years. This is what sustained the blood of the martyrs was that they too themselves looked heavenward, knowing this was not our home. We pray that by your grace we would point our eyes upward to where Christ dwells eternally. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.